0: In our presence as we worship and sing and pray to you, Lord, we pray now that as we open your word, you would speak to us clearly and we could delight all the more in what you have to say. Thank you. You are gracious and kind and good. Speak now as we open your word together. We love you. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. We're doing the second part of Ezra chapter 8. We did the first part last week. In your bulletin, there's a little thing. I'm about to, at one point in the sermon, I'm going to fire off a bunch of reasons why you should fast. And these are the scripture references that will kind of help, uh, I don't know, crystallize those. We're not going to go through them all, clearly, because there's a bunch of them. But um, you can uh, you can take that home as home, homework. Um, You've got to love when a pastor gives you homework. For a Sunday morning service, um, so Ezra chapter eight, beginning in verse uh, twenty-one, we will read from twenty-one to the end of the chapter. And just to remind you of where we are in the story, they have uh, they have gone to um, they've gone to they've stopped at the river Ahava, or at the place Ahava where there's a river, and they have. Paused to gather the Levites, and we kinda cut halfway into the story here, and so we're picking up where they are about to head out. They're about to leave Ahava. So verse twenty-one. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God, to seek from him safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the, the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and lords and all Israel there present had offered." I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth uh, 100 derricks and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem with the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels, to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days on the fourth day. Within the house of God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of the of Marimuth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with Eli, with him was Eleazar, the son of Phineas. Him, I'm sorry. With him, with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binyai. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-six lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was burnt was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions, to the kings and satraps and the governors and the province at the province beyond the river, and they added that I'm sorry, they aided the people and the house of God, and may God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. So, as we come to this, let's remind ourselves of where we are here. Uh, we've covered who's going in chapter eight, verses 14, 1 through fourteen, and the feast of dedication in chapter eight, verses fifteen through twenty. Uh, now we're going to look at the, feast, the fast at Ahava, the organization and the going itself, and then the arrival beyond the river. So as we approach today, we're looking at these bottom three, right? These three things, uh, Ezra and the, uh, the organization, the fast, the organization, and the arrival. Uh, so as we go, as we go to the river, or as they, as they go to Israel, they stop. At Ahava. Ahava is a curious thing because we don't know really where Ahava was. We don't know what Ahava is. We know that Ahava is a general geographic location and that there was a river there. That's all that we know. It could be that the river was named Ahava. It could be that the area was Ahava. It could be that there's, uh, there's something going on here. Now, the odd thing about the word Ahava is not a Hebrew word. It's a foreign word, um, and it's, but in the Hebrew spelling it sounds an awful lot like some other words. It's an odd uh, thing. So they stop at the river Ahava, and they're going the right way. And remember last week, we talked about how in verses 15 through 20, they stop and gather and go. There in verse 15, it says, I gathered them together at the river, and then I got these men, and we talked about El Nathan and El Nathan and El Nathan and Nathan all going to get these leaders from the Levites. And they knew that when they were going to Jerusalem, they had to have the right priests to go. They had to have Levites. They had to have the Levitical guard to keep and protect things. And they knew that they needed to have this. So they paused at the river and they gathered the people. So they stop and they gather. And now we're reading about the going. So they want to go the right way. So Ahava, they pause here. and Going the right way, they take this three-day pause. And they take patience to go correctly. Now, there's something we can learn. There's a lot of little lessons that are written in here that we can learn. And one here is that you ought to be patient when following the mission of God. So when God gives you something to do or a place to go... You ought to be willing to pause and evaluate how you're going and why you're going. You ought to not let tyranny of the urgent overtake you or the the zealousness of the people overtake you. Can you imagine going out with 1,500, with about 6,000 people at most, gathered together and you're ready to go and you're fired up and you've got everybody's ready everybody's ready and you've got momentum and then the leader of your group Ezra goes hold on we forgot some people and you go well, they didn't volunteer up front they, didn't, they get left behind we're going and the leader wisely says no we're going to pause we're going to find the right people who have the right commission We have the right thing from God, and we're going to go get them, and we're all going to go together. This is brilliant. This is great. Do not allow the tyranny of the urgent to rule your decision-making. Do not allow the, the zeal of everyone around you to overrule your prayerful consideration of what God leads you to do. Christians, do not make rash and quick decisions. We make decisions couched in prayer that happen over years of time. That's why it's always wild when you research the big movements of God in church history, you find that often the person at the forefront who made the big decision to do something that changes the world is somebody who has been walking with the Lord for 20 to 30 plus years. And it just suddenly lands. Or if they happen to be young, there's a group around them that have been walking with the Lord for 20 to 30 years, and suddenly something happens. This is this is what's going on here. Ezra is pausing and going, "No, we're going to do this the right way. We're going to take our time. We're going to seek the Lord." And remember, he gives them two men in particular, Sherebiah and Hash- Hashabiah. And Jeshua, three men in particular. He gives them three men in particular. And and we saw last week the names and the meanings of those names and how profound they were. And so he goes the right way. He takes time and he stops. At the place of pause here, God gives them leaders. So they are not to be hasty. They are to be taking their time. So they stop at Ahava. Uh, they stop at a hava. Let's just take a second and, and I want to just for a moment, give you some understanding of the word Ahava. There's, there's, there's a couple of Hebrew words, two Hebrew words in particular that this seems to be a derivative of. One of them is the word for love, Ahava, not hesed, but Ahava, which is like love as in I love you kind of love thing. And so, there's that word and then there's another word which is Ahach, which is the, like, you can say it, it's kind of fun, Aha, like it's, it's alas, right? And it's, it's uh, this idea of surprise or shock, like, alas, this happened. Um, but neither of those words are this word. It's clear. It's important to note, neither of those words are this word. These words are homonyms. Because uh, aha, you can say ahavach, you know, and it's, it's, this, uh, it's this word that means surprise or alas. So you got love and surprise both happening here in homonym form, but the, the word at best as we can figure it out, means I will subsist. Or I will subsist. I will continue. I will, re- I will survive. Uh, which is intriguing. You've got these three, three words, none of, none of which are, th- th- again, this isn't a Hebrew word, so don't really know what it means. But these three indications, three words that kind of sound similar. So when a Hebrew reader is reading it and goes, they stopped at a hava. They're going to go, wait, what? They stop, which one? And then when they look up the spelling, they're going to go, none of those are right. Right? So uh, they've got this hominin. And I want you to kind of hear in the midst of surprise and pause and love, the love of the community about to go to Jerusalem, in the midst of the, we're going, the surprise, the shock of, alas, finally, yeah, wow, we're going. And amidst all that is this underlying current of I will subsist going here. And they've paused at the river where they will subsist. And so they stop and they wait and they they fast. At a place of pause, God gives them leaders. So some of the things that we can learn from this is do not be hasty to appoint leaders to start missions. Do not be hasty to appoint leaders to start missions. It is tempting when you see a godly person or a person who seems godly to go, they're great, let's stick them in leadership. And as a church pastor who's been in ministry for quite some time uh, at multiple different types of churches, I can guarantee you this happens at other churches all the time. Where it's like, oh, you seem to be together, you seem to have a gift for this, why don't we put you in charge of this ministry? And then the person looks at you and goes, I've only come for one week. <laughs> and you go, Right, right, but we need someone to fill the children's ministry here, or we need somebody to do this thing over here. And I just want you to know I don't know if you've been able to tell, I don't do that. Um, and there's multiple reasons, but not the least of which is this one. We ought to be slow to appoint people to positions of leadership, and that will frustrate other people who want leaders. But it will also ensure the quality of leaders. It will also ensure that we are doing things the right way. Do not let the tyranny of the urgent overwhelm you. Proverbs 19, verse 2 says, It isn't good to have zeal without knowledge, nor be hasty with one's feet and miss the way. So in other words, we don't do things fast. We take our time, we pray, we fast about things just like Ezra models here. So they come to Ahava, and we talked about these different word meanings. Um, Whatever the meaning of the name is, it is wise when facing a daunting task to pause, to take stock, and to ensure that our motives are right. Look there in verse 21. It says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. So he stops, he pauses, and the motive is what he's challenging. He says we're going to fast to determine that our motive is in the right place, that we have the right motive. So he calls a fast for humility, and he calls a fast for provision, and a fast for clarity. That's what this is for. These things are are for them to make sure that their motives are in the right place. And indeed, you, Christian, me, Christian, we are encouraged to do the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul urges us to test ourselves, to test yourselves, to see if there's any wicked way in you. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus encourages us to check and make sure that your motives are for God. They're for God the Lord and in First Corinthians chapter 11 verse 28, that chapter we, we reference every time we take communion together. That chapter, Paul says, "To examine yourselves to make sure you aren't taking communion in an unworthy manner, that you are instead being careful. We are urged to do this throughout the New Testament and throughout Scripture. We are told to examine ourselves and check our motives and make sure that our motives are in the right place. So they pause to seek a fast. They pause to seek a fast for humility, for provision from God, and for clarity. There in verse 21. And as they do, uh, it is necessary for us to pause and talk about fasting. So, why don't we fast? That says why we don't fast. It should say why don't we fast. Um, There's... Fasting is something bizarre in American culture. We don't do it. It doesn't get done. Um, it should be. It does not. It's, it's a spiritual practice that's kind of lost to our culture. So we have this question before us. Why don't we fast? It happens often in the Bible that people fast. It's normal. It happens often in other cultures that people fast. It is, this is a distinct issue with our culture. A culture of excess and a culture of comfort where we don't often fast. And if we do fast, it's usually for exercise purposes, for health reasons, not for spiritual ones. But fasting has always been a spiritual exercise first. It has always been a spiritual exercise first. In the ancient times, and the Talmudic writing, you can read about how the rabbis would encourage people to fast, not just for health reasons, but they would encourage them to fast for holiness reasons, for issues of hearing from the Lord. So why don't we fast? And I think just in my own personal experience, there's usually two reasons. One, we don't believe it works. That's the first one. We don't believe it works. And, and that can be a myriad of reasons. Often it's because we're not actually doing it, so we don't think it works. Uh, but sometimes it's because we have fasted and we got a no. And we're grumpy little children and got mad at God for telling us no, so we're like, fasting doesn't work. God's not a genie. He doesn't respond. He doesn't respond when you say or do the right thing. He is God, and he's not tame, and you don't get to tell him what to do. He does what he wants. So we see, why don't we fast? Well, often we don't believe it works. Uh, second, we don't know how. we don't know how to fast. Um, when you ask somebody if they've fasted, often if they say yes, it usually means... They didn't eat a meal that day, but they went and did all their normal things. Well, that's not really fasting. Fasting is actually replacing a physical substance with a spiritual one. Fasting is an issue of replacing. So if you're not eating a meal, great. But when you don't eat that meal, you're supposed to replace that meal with study, devotion, prayer, worship, those kinds of things. Community activities, service to others. You're supposed to replace that meal with some spiritually significant activity. I mean, if you just fast from food and you don't replace the meal, all that's going to happen is you're going you're to feel a little bit more tired. You might get hangry. And you might fuss at people a little bit more. Which is kind of contrary to doing a spiritual fast. So we don't know how. Now, there's numerous books and... And things that you can learn to fast from. So if, if you're listening to me going, I've never done a spiritual fast. I've never fasted from food for the purpose. And, and just so you're aware, when the Bible talks about fasting, it always deals with food. It always deals with food. So uh, it doesn't say fasting from media or those things. Those, those are good. Uh, and those are types of fast. But those are not the... When the Bible talks about fasting, it's almost always food. In fact, it is always food. food. But the... Um, So when we talk about fasting, there's numerous books you can get. There's just one I would commend to you, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. He's got a chapter in there on fasting, and it's great, and it's easy, it's very practical. It's a very practical book uh, about spiritual disciplines. And I have used that book. I am confident in the various things in it. I will caveat that by saying we do not agree with everything Richard Foster says. But... In that book, he talks about very practical ways to develop spiritual disciplines. And let's not kid ourselves. Christianity and the work of a Christian is a discipline. And it is a work. It is exercise. It is not for the faint and lazy. It is for people who want to grow. And so when we talk about fasting, there are numerous things I can tell you about how to fast. I'll just suffice it to say, if you don't know how to fast, the easiest way to do it is to skip one meal and pray instead of eating. Easiest way to do it. Open your Bible and pray instead of eating for one meal and then make it two and then make it three and then at that point you've got a 24-hour fast. Hopefully, because you're eating three meals a day, right? So you take three three meals off and you can take them in whatever order you want. God is not concerned with whether you take them at noon or if you, if you start at noon or if you start at breakfast. It's, he's not there with a clipboard going, you didn't do this right. He's making sure that you did it. Now, Uh, When you do fast, make sure you have somebody else uh, who knows you're fasting so they can pray for you while you do it. Make it quiet. Don't, you know, don't exalt yourself from the mountaintops. That kind of defeats the purpose. But instead, call somebody, say, I'm fasting today. Could you please pray for me that I would hear from the Lord well and that I would know, uh, you know, whatever it is you're fasting for. Now, he talks about, he stops to fast and he, there's reasons why he doesn't, why he fasts here in Ahava. And the reason being that he wants, he, he wants to fast for humility, to humble himself before the Lord. But why do we fast? So why should we fast? Uh, why we should fast? Uh, this is this list of things here. In the Bible, you've got tons of reasons to fast. Here's one, rescue from doom, hope from liberation from trouble, expression to grief. So this is adding expression to... To your grief. When you're grieving, you fast. Job does it uh, throughout the scripture. You fast from things in order to show God that you are a contrite heart and you're grieving. So, an act of penance is another type of fast. To humble oneself is another reason to fast. Yet, more reasons to secure the guidance and help from God on behalf of others. Did you know that you could fast on behalf of others? You fast. On behalf of your child, Job fasts on behalf of his children. So we have fasts on behalf of others. We have fasts to gain a hearing from God, and that's usually the one that people want to fast for. They are fasting because there's some obstacle or thing that they are longing for, and they want God to answer them. So you have those reasons. Now, uh, there's na- there's different types of fasts and there's natures of fasting. Uh, fasting without right conduct is in vain. It's pointless. If your heart is not in the right place when you fast, then your fast is going to be pointless. Uh, it's always accompanied by prayer in the scripture. Special fast for 40 days or three weeks. There's a couple of those in scripture where there's uh, specialized specialized fast, where they're fasting from uh, a bulk of meals, or they're just uh, drinking broth of some sort in order for 40 days um, or for three weeks. There's... There's a principle that hypocritical fasts are not received by God. Fasting is only commanded for the community one time. And that's in Leviticus 23 verses 27 through 31 where they were where the Levitical community was supposed to fast and in scripture it's written afflict yourself to afflict themselves for the sake of hearing from the Lord. Now, uh, having covered those things, we go back to Ezra and we see him going the right way. At Ahava, he uh, stops to fast, and I want you to look back up in verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So Ezra fasts for humility, and part of the reason he fasts for humility and for protection from the Lord and for clarity is because he has made a big brag on God. He told the king, God's got us. God's got us covered. We are covered. We do not need, we do not need any, any covering. We, we're good. God's got us covered. So we see uh, Ezra being kind of ashamed. And I love this about Ezra. He's, he's nervous and, and he's honest. He's ashamed that he said this to the Lord. I mean, he said this to the king. But it's not a shame as in like he disappointed or he regrets saying it. It's a shame as in like, I really need this to happen. I really need this to happen. So he made a big statement about God and he's feeling nervous. So I don't know if you've ever prayed for anybody and you've made a big statement about what God's going to do. Because you prayed for them, like, I prayed for you, this is going to happen. And then you go home and you're going, I really hope this happens, right? I really hope this happens. Um, We usually caveat things because of this kind of shame. We usually caveat things and go, if the Lord wills, right? Or if it's the will of the Lord, let this happen. But Ezra didn't do that. Ezra was bold and made this statement. And after the fact went, oh boy, I hope this works. I hope this works. So he doesn't ask for a military escort. Now, understand it would not have been wrong for him to ask a military escort. Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2, verse 9 is going to have a military escort from the king. He's going to ride in with a small army. And that's because it's not wrong for him to ask for that. But Ezra has made this statement. And so, verse 23, we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. When you are nervous about the things that you believe God has said to you or told you to do, when you are nervous, fasting is a way to communicate to the Lord appropriately, I am nervous, but I trust you. I am nervous, but I trust you. And it is a way to bring your heart in line with what the Lord is doing. So, when you fast, fast this way, so we have these uh, these reasons to fast, and he he has called a fast, and we've got uh, him going the right way. And now let's talk about the organization and the going. Verse twenty four and following. Then I set apart twelve leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. First, the Levites are entrusted here with leadership, and there are 12 of them. Every tribe is represented. Every tribe is represented. Every tribe is responsible. So every tribe is responsible in the family of Israel, just like in the church, when you're a part of the household of God on mission with the rest of the church, you have a part to play. You are equally responsible. There is responsibility shared among the body. Not everything lands on Ezra, And not everything lands on Sherebiah, or not everything lands on Hashabiah, but rather the community, all of them are represented here. Everyone has a part. Everyone has a part to play, and everyone is responsible. So the funds are entrusted to the Levites there in verses 25 through 27. We've got, I set apart 12 of them. And then it says, and I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. And I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold and 20 bowls of gold worth a 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. So Ezra knows what he has given each group. Each Levite who is in charge of each tribes offering is given a specific set amount by Ezra to carry and to guard and to protect they are to protect and guard these things so the funds are given to them and meticulously counted and then Ezra commissions the levites there next they're commissioned in verse 28 it says and i said to them you are holy to the lord you are holy to the lord the vessels are holy to the lord And they belong to him. You are holy to the Lord. What you have been entrusted with is for the Lord. These are free will offerings to the Lord, the God of your fathers. And then there in verse 29, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests. We have a beautiful shadow of what happens in Christianity here. This is a beautiful shadow. You are entrusted with gifts, talents, things that God has given you here to use for the kingdom. You are entrusted with these things. And at the end of time, you will stand before him and according to scripture, give an account of what you have done with what he has given you. You will give an account. First, you are holy to the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, it says, As he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and following, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You've been set apart. You've been made Holy, you are His. In First Peter chapter two, verse one, it says, "Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants, crave spiritual milk, so that you grow into salvation." You have been changed and transformed. You are no longer those things. You have been given something to grow towards, to move towards. And in chapter two, First Peter chapter two, verse nine, it says, "This you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood." He's referencing the Levites. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You are all these things for the sake of the gospel, and you have been given all these things. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says this, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, remember, this is them coming back from the exile. He is referencing these things. As sojourners and exiles, we are still in exile here on earth, abstain from the passions of the flesh with wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is going to come a day when the things and activities you do here, because you are a holy people, the things and activities you do here, you will present them before the Lord as his offerings. Remember Romans says, "Offer your lives as living sacrifice to the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship." You will give an account just like the people and as just like these Levites who are bringing things to the king. This is a shadow of what is to come. These Levites are going to the temple. One day, the temple will come down from heaven. Jesus will return to collect his, his bride, and we will stand there, and we will throw crowns before Him. We will give Him an account of what we have done. He will stand. Be- we will stand before Him, and He, being covered in His righteousness, still will hand Him what we have done on the day that He returns. And as Paul says, some will be as one escaping naked from a fire. Some will be as one escaping naked from a fire with no rewards, and others will stand before the Lord, giving Him reward after reward after reward, being able to lay gifts at His feet. Jesus said, I tell you, in Matthew 12, 37, Jesus said, I tell you, on that day of judgment, the people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. For every careless word that they speak. In Romans chapter 14, verse 12, Paul urges, so then each of us will give an account to God. In 1 Peter 4, verse 5, it reminds us that Jesus judges the living and the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, some will have nothing to show because they will have escaped from the fire. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it says we must appear... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we each may receive what is due for the work that we have done. We will give an account like these Levites at the end of days. We will stand before the Lord and we will give an account. And I don't know about you, I want to be able to throw everything at his feet. I want every aspect of my life to have been something valuable that he will take. I don't want careless words, though I know they come. I don't want faulty ministry, though I know sometimes that happens. What I want is to be backing up truckloads upon truckloads of crown before the Lord so I can say, I know it's not enough. I know it's not enough, but it's all that I have. Because He's worthy of everything. And when I show up at the kingdom, I don't want to be one who buried my talent in a a field and hid it I want to be one who multiplied what He gave me. I want to be one who, who labored to surrender my own wealth for the sake of the kingdom of God, my own prosperity for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want Him to be proud of me. And for Him to delight. And so do you. Because you've been entrusted with great things. You've been entrusted with great things, with talents, with children, with families. You've been entrusted with things that you are to use for the kingdom of God. That you are to use for the kingdom of God. And in this way, we will stand before the Lord one day and give an account. Note that these Levites, when they get there, they count everything in verse 34. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. And everything made it. Let's look at verse 31. So next, we've got God protecting his people in verse 31 through 34. We've got going the right way, and we've got organization going, and God protects his people in verses 31 thirty four, Then we departed at the river Hava on the twelfth day and on the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. That line, wouldn't you like to know what, what happened on the way? This is a long journey by foot with 6,000 people. Wouldn't you like to know what ambushes mean? And the hand of the enemy means one day we're going to be able to sit across from Ezra and go, Hey, what happened on that journey that you didn't write down? What happened? Because that's a loaded sentence. God protected us from ambushes and from the enemy, the hand of the enemy. The hand of God is greater than the hand of the enemy. So, Application, there's some beauty in this. The hand of God is greater than the hand of the enemy. If God calls you to do something, he's going to protect you as you go. It may be rough, it may be hard, but you will accomplish what he has called you to accomplish because if you're obedient, he will walk with you and you will. it will work because it's what he has called to do. And God does not do things halfway. He's going to do it. God will accomplish his purposes. Just like he told Esther in the book of Esther, that if you don't do it, somebody's going to. It's for such a time of this that you've been called, but if you don't do it, don't worry. God will give us deliverance from somewhere else. God's mind was to deliver the people of of Israel, and Esther was the one who had the opportunity to do it, and Mordecai tells her, if you don't do it, somebody's going to do it. But for such a time of this, you have been called to do this. So we see this beautiful picture. God protects and guards his people when they obey and follow. He protects them and guards them. And when they don't obey and follow, we have chastisement from the Lord, according to Hebrews. We have chastisement from the Lord, that we will be disciplined in our lack of obedience. So God protects his people. I'd love to know those stories that go on there. In verse 32, we came to Jerusalem, and there we remained for three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of God, the silver and gold and the vessels were weighed at the hands of Miramoth, the priest, the son of Uriah, and with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas, and with him were the Levites, Josebad and the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, and the son of ben The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. So they take a three-day break, and then they give an accounting. The three-day break is pretty... Uh, there's, there's a lot of times in Scripture where you can find three days and then something happens on the fourth day, three days and then something happens. Um, and I do think that there's some foreshadowing that you could kind of poetically uh, see throughout Scripture that God tends to do this three days and then on the fourth day stuff just explodes, stuff goes really well. I think, I think there's some foreshadowing. We're not going to belabor that point if you want to talk about that at lunch. That would be great. But what we do want to see here is that they pause when they get there. And they rest. They paused before they left for three days. They pause here for three days. There's a rhythm to following the Lord, and that rhythm is often begun with pause and end with pause. It's often starts with a pause and a breath, and then ends with a pause and a breath. We see this rhythm in our daily spiritual life. My my family, in particular, I know when I. I've gotten to the point where as a family, as a church body, I'm talking about you guys, as a family, when, when there's a kind of rest and a lull, I know, all, all right, something's going to happen. I know, like, if everything is calm and comfortable, I'm going, okay, God's giving us a break before something happens. And so, on those days, when, or on those months, seasons, everybody likes seasons nowadays, on those seasons, we... We pause and we rest and we reflect and we do everything we can to rejoice in the Lord and take a deep breath and get ready for whatever he's bringing. And I can remember times when we'd be praying and as a church, we'd be praying in various settings, whether I'm across the table from other people or whether I'm in church service or whether we had a prayer service or something, we'd be praying and I would feel that, okay, this is a deep breath moment. We're taking a deep breath in this time period, and we don't know when this time period is going to stop, but we need to breathe deep. We need to rest. We need to fast and be prepared for whatever's coming. And it's been beautiful to see the Lord bring our church through ebbs and flows and ups and downs. It's been beautiful to see the Lord bring my family through ebbs and flows and ups and downs. And I can distinctly remember those times of rest and then work and then rest and then work and then rest. There's a rhythm to life. That we get into, and we begin to hear the song of God through the rhythm, just like a jack in the box. You begin to recognize, okay, something's gonna come. Boom! And then jumps out, and you're like, I knew it was there. And there's still a little bit of an aha. Still a little bit of an oh no. Alas. But because we know the Lord, there's still this path of love that we walk. So They give an accounting, but after they've taken a breath. Then in verse 35 through 36, we have the worship upon arrival. I want you just to think about how this works. So you've got all these people who have come, 42,000 or so Jews who have come to the area, and probably more at this point, who are in the area, who have been uh, worshiping the Lord, but not fully, like they're kind of half-heartedly worshiping. Ezra is coming with the law of God, and he's bringing... The Levites back. The Levites are coming, and he's bringing all these people. And so they show up, and they've got money and wealth and offering for the temple. The temple. This literally means that the temple is now decorated. They walk into the temple, and there's now beautiful bowls and and chandel like what are they called? candelabras. The big things, the big menorah things. You know, they've got those things everywhere. They've got materials now they've got gifts they've got there's tapestries on the walls now there's paintings there's art there's all kinds of decor and so just from the standpoint of people who have been worshiping there for about 60 to 70 years who've been worshiping there they walk into a new place and it's exciting and all of a sudden the temple of god is invigorated with the funds and the decor and now the, Levit- the Levitical guards are there. So now it's back to a place of prestige and power. And look at what happens. At, the to- at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, note the two descriptions. They're freed from captivity, they are returned exiles. These are not, they're not identified as the people of Israel. Their identification is wrapped up in what they used to be still captive exiles. They've come out of that. And so this temple is a symbol of that ending. And this arrival of the wealth and the prominence of God's people is that ending. And he returned exiles. They offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for, every, for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. So they have a worship service, which is exactly what you do when you enter into the kingdom of heaven. On that day when Christ returns and sets everything right and the the heavens are united with earth, what is the first thing that happens? A feast, a party, a worship service, a, a delightful feast to the Lord. That's exactly what happens here. Exactly what happens here. And this is a shadow of what we get. Israel got this at this point. Reestablishes the, the temple worship and the offering. And is a shadow, brother and sister, of what we get. They delivered the king's commissions to the kings and satraps. And to the governors beyond the province. Beyond the river. To the province beyond the river. And they aided the people in the house of God. One day, the Lord will set everything right and we will have this. We will give an account before the Lord where we lay everything out. And then there's going to be a party. And that party goes on and on and on and on and on in the creative work of God for eternity. And not only that, but all the kings of the world are told... You are no longer in charge. Rather, the house of God is now reigning, is now present. And we will forever live with our King in glory because, unlike Ezra and Nehemiah, unlike Ezra and Nehemiah, we have Christ. We have the perfect priest, prophet, priest, and king who has changed our hearts and set things right. We have the one who is the Lord of glory. Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll find out in the next two chapters of Ezra and in the whole book of Nehemiah, they need Jesus still. But we haven't. So, it is our delight to worship the Lord even now as we look forward to the King coming as we are a royal priesthood in a form of exile. We trust in Christ at every moment to lead us in every way because we will one day stand before him and give an account. We will be covered in his righteousness and I hope like me that you will stand in the hopes that you give countless treasures to the king because I know that my labor here among you has not been in vain and you are a delight And we will worship the King in glory forever. Father, we love you and we trust you in all things.